Alan Jones, direct to the people, right across Australia. Well, good evening and thank you for being with us on what is a pioneering initiative. We're gathering momentum. The responses to this new digital program have been from all over the world. Now, admittedly, in any new project, and this has never been before attempted in Australia, there will be some glitches, but last night we were almost glitch-free and your enthusiastic and supportive responses are much appreciated. By the way, you can watch the program on the website, alanjones.com.au, or on YouTube. Now, just go to YouTube and search for Alan Jones Australia. Click onto the live stream link. And the point is, you can watch it on your TV. But to do this, you access it through YouTube. You can also watch me through Facebook, but only via your computer or your mobile phone. But if you want to be on the lounge, you're a bit lazy like all of us, YouTube is the way. But everything starts on the website, alanjones.com.au. All the editorials are there and the programs, and you can make your comments as well. It is the new way. Well, talking about a new way, a new way is upon us, at least in New South Wales. McGowan is feeling the heat in WA about the denial of freedoms. Anastasia Palaszczuk seems to be all over the place. In fact, I've had some serious phone calls today from businesses about the Omicron case in Queensland and supposed close contacts. And the fear that because airlines are involved, because one case was from overseas, the airlines have been now been named. This new Chief Health Officer in Queensland, Dr John Gerard, has previously been the Director of Infectious Diseases at the Gold Coast University Hospital. He needs to calm people down, banish alarmism. Daniel Andrews locked Melbourne down when there were six cases of coronavirus. Now he wants to be given credit for freedom when there are over 1,000 cases. Oh, yeah, the lockdowns worked, didn't they? Victorians punished with freedoms removed for no discernible benefit, but massive cost. I've been saying this week that we will not be the Australia we should be, a free and democratic society, if our freedoms don't come back. Dominic Perrottet, the New South Wales Premier, has led the charge on this. Can he be criticised for not doing more? I suppose so. But remember one thing. He's the leader of the Liberal Party in New South Wales, and in the Parliamentary Party and the Cabinet, he's surrounded by a horde of lefties, many of them even wanted lockdowns at the first breath of Omicron. Just on that, can we have a bit of sanity? The ANU infectious diseases physician, world-acclaimed Peter Collignon, has been quite specific on this when he said this week, and I quote, case numbers should not be our focus. We should look at hospitalisations and deaths. He said, if you look at some of the predictions made earlier this year, and I'll tell you what, he doesn't hesitate in naming them. He went on the Bernard Institute in Melbourne. In particular, he said they were massively wrong. Isn't that cold comfort? Alarmism. Professor Collignon argued, with Omicron, could it get worse? Yes, it could. He said it probably spreads more, but we're not seeing any evidence in South Africa of massive numbers of immunised people being in hospital. We have to be careful not to overreact. He went on, if you look at the cases from New South Wales in the past week, the vast majority are in people who are under 40 and are therefore at much lower risk and at much lower risk again if they are immunised. Professor Collignon, so he says... Case numbers should not be our focus. Well, today, Dominic Perrottet in New South Wales leads the way again. This bloke is an outstanding and genuine Liberal Conservative. As you heard in this, on this program on Monday night, he can articulate a philosophy in relation to restoring freedoms that should never have been removed. Now, I know many of you commented on the website about the non-vaccinated and were critical of the way they were being treated as second-class citizens. Well, today, unvaccinated people in New South Wales will have the same freedom as vaccinated people. 
The public must take great credit. 94.8% over the age of 16 have had one jab in New South Wales. 93.2% both jabs. Perrottet has faced his critics. And I can assure you, it hasn't been easy for him. But he has asserted the fact that he is the leader. So from today, there's no limit to the number of people allowed in your home, at outdoor public gatherings or at hospitality venues. Masks have been dropped as a requirement in most indoor settings, including shops. And businesses like hairdressers and beauty salons will have no density limits. I'll tell you what, this is going to put pressure on other premiers. Perrottet is leading the way. He said there are no density limits for gyms, indoor recreations or sporting facilities. Community sports events with over a 1,000 attendees will no longer require one of those wretched COVID-19 safety plans. In other words, as I said months and months ago, we have to learn to live with this. Fewer than 1% of Australians have tested positive and 0.008% have died. Well, from today, no travel restrictions for people in Greater Sydney or regional New South Wales. Masks will be required on public transport and planes. I'm not too sure the Premier agrees with this, but the left have had a few wins at airports and for indoor front-of-house hospitality staff who are not fully vaccinated. Though, as Mark Latham said last night, there could be 50 of you in a restaurant and you don't wear a mask, but if you're on a bus or a plane, you do. Work that out. As I said, the left have had some wins. These wretched QR codes will be required for hospitals, aged and disability care facilities, gyms, places of worship, funeral services, personal services like hairdressers, sex services, pubs, small bars, registered clubs, you'll need your QR code. Music festivals will reopen with a 20,000 person limit and international travellers who've not been fully vaccinated will need, of course, to quarantine for 14 days on arrival. But unvaccinated people will have the same freedoms as vaccinated people. At least Perrottet has silenced the alarmists. Is it a perfect answer? Certainly not. Are the authoritarian public health bureaucrats who've betrayed our values and who have advised government, will they still be looking over Perrottet's shoulder? But at least Perrottet refuses to demonise subgroups like the unvaccinated. He has to be congratulated for extraordinary courage in standing up to the crushing forces of bureaucratic and often ignorant public health authoritarians. Too many Conservatives in this country in the last two years have paid lip service to freedoms and choices that they're supposed to believe in but lack the spine to enforce. As one editorial said this week on Perrottet, you have shown yourself to be infinitely superior to the other Premiers this nation is burdened with and then it amusingly said, although we do admit that it's not a very high bar. But make no mistake, Perrottet's repetitive public utterances have shamed all other so-called leaders out of being global laughingstocks. Nonetheless, the mandatory vaccination requirements are in place. I'll talk to Pauline Hanson about that shortly. But it's interesting that in this very same week, the Prime Minister made a speech about the need for Australians to recover their freedom. Nonetheless, he didn't admit that the creation of an unconstitutional national cabinet led to the very crushing of freedoms that he now purports to oppose. He says vaccinations are not mandatory. But as Mark Latham said last night, thousands and thousands of Australians are losing their jobs for not being vaccinated. I'll look at that in a moment. The Prime Minister rightly argued that the left of politics, his words, might want to use pandemic power as, quote, a pretext for a more expansive government role and reach into society across economic, social and cultural domains, unquote. However, it's one thing to talk about smaller government and restoring freedoms. It's another thing to deliver. And I can assure you that the talk of smaller government is just rhetoric. Tomorrow, I will prove that point. 
Mr Morrison has argued that he favours freedoms like freedom of speech, but that's quite separate from, as the nation's leader, ensuring that those freedoms are real. As an editorial today points out, back in 2017, when there was talk of the coalition repealing an overbroad provision of the anti-discrimination laws hostile to free speech, Mr Morrison's response was to say, oh, I know this issue doesn't create one job, doesn't open one business. We need to hear the Prime Minister emphatically and repetitively on the values that underpin this country. It should be a central component of his election manifesto because in the Australia of today, anyone who dissents from the leftist dogma is apparently guilty of hate speech or indeed racism. No democratic civil society can long survive in that environment. We must encourage open debate and a plurality of views debated in a civilised way. Dominic Perrottet has led the way today, albeit it's not perfect, but we need national leadership. As one writer says today, to energise an effective Australian platform for freedom, unquote. We don't have it. That is your job, Mr Morrison. And to another matter, Mark Latham spoke yesterday about the constitutional right of a government of New South Wales to appoint experts from outside government to ministerial positions, simply because he rightly argued that the expertise doesn't exist within the talent pool available to government. I have to confess I shake my head in alarm at the pull that the bureaucracy has over government ministers. We have in New South Wales a planning minister, Rob Stokes, a decent man, but decency is one thing, woeful judgment is another. As for the resources minister, Paul Toole, who came into Parliament in 2011, I wouldn't put him in charge of the tuck shop at your local school. But my point is this, Stokes has been in the Parliament since 2017, Toole 2011. When Barry O'Farrell campaigned successfully to win government in 2011 in New South Wales, he said, and I quote, there will be no more mining in water catchment areas, no ifs, no buts, a guarantee. Yet here we are more than 10 years on and coal mining continues in Sydney's water catchment area. Now make no mistake, I'm in favour of coal mining but not in water catchment areas. An independent panel appointed by the Berejiklian government reported at the end of 2018, do you mind, that it was plausible that the Dendrobian mine just west of Wollongong could be responsible for the loss of three million litres of water a day from the Cordo and Avon dams. In fact, advisers to the New South Wales government for years have expressed concerns about water loss due to subsidence caused by mining. But... Barry O'Farrell said, he reassured the people, he said Liberal governments, quote, there'll be no mining in water catchment areas, no ifs, no buts, a guarantee. Illawarra Coal is, wholly owned, is a wholly owned subsidiary of BHP Billiton. It owns and operates the Dendrobian Mine, which is a metallurgical coal mine and has been acknowledged to be in the Sydney water catchment area. Shouldn't that be the full stop? Aren't Rob Stokes and this fellow Tool aware of the independent panel appointed by their Liberal government, of which they were members, which found that the Dendrobian mine could be responsible for the loss of three million litres of water. That's one and a half Olympic swimming pools every day because of subsidence due to mining. Well, only last week, and this stuff always happens before Christmas, when governments and bureaucrats think there'll be no scrutiny, the New South Wales government have granted state-significant infrastructure status to this very mine. The proposal to extend the Dendrobian coal mine, state-significant. But in February, the state's independent planning commission rejected the company's plan to extract another 78 million tonnes of coal from the mine. The planning commission found that the project should be refused. Quote, 
based on the potential for long-term and irreversible impacts, particularly on the integrity of a vital water drinking source for the MacArthur and Illawarra regions, the Wallanilly Shire and the Metropolitan of Sydney. This is an independent planning commission report to the government. It said it is not in the public interest. Now, this dope, who's the Resources Minister, Paul Toole, would know nothing other than what the bureaucracy tells him. He said, oh, metallurgical coal from the mine was essential for steelmaking at the Blue Scope Steelworks. Well, I can't read either because the Independent Planning Commission in February found that coal from the Dendrobian mine is, quote, primarily destined for other markets beyond the Illawarra region. That 77% of the coking coal from Dendrobian was exported out of the region. Well, now it's up to Rob Stokes, the planning minister. He will be the consent authority. He assures us the community will have its say. Why then has he made this thing state significant? Two points emerge. It was a Liberal government's leader, Barry O'Farrell, who argued there would be no mining in water catchment areas, no ifs, no buts, a guarantee. So on that basis, Stokes has to say no. He was a member of that government. Secondly, there are dominant factions in the Liberal government who are arguing for the abolition of coal mining. Yet here is the same government granting state significant infrastructure status to a mine that is not essential for the Blue Scope Steelworks and about which the government's own independent panel argued that such an extension of the mine could be responsible for the loss of three million litres of water a day. And yet this project has state significant status. Does the left hand know what the right hand is doing? Would this stuff pass an ICAC investigation? Well, I suspect there's going to be a lot of election talk and election activity down the track because if you exclude the Christmas holiday break, there aren't too many weeks between now and the next federal election. Pauline Hanson is the national leader of One Nation. I was at a function this week where prominent Australians shared their political views. One very notable Australian woman, highly intelligent, widely read, and very respected, said that while she hasn't ever voted for Pauline Hanson, she admired her because she said plainly what she believed in, and she says it with passion and conviction. The follow-up comment was that with so many people in Canberra, you don't know what they stand for. Pauline Hanson has said she refuses to get vaccinated and put, quote, shit into her body. She was speaking earlier this month at a Business for Choice event at Ipswich in Queensland. She simply said she had taken that stance, quote, and that is my choice. She said, and let's make this clear, she said, I am not an anti-vaxxer, but I'm very careful of what I put into my body, unquote. Now, let's get a few things straight before we start. I'll be speaking to Pauline in just a moment. She has said she is not an anti-vaxxer, nor am I. For this program to promote freedom of speech, we must hear people's views and let people come to their own conclusions. In the Australia of today, the left don't want debate. They want to silence debate and intimidate people from offering a different viewpoint. Pauline Hanson told her audience that she had maintained a healthy lifestyle and that she believed that she would be jeopardising her health by getting the jab. Let me just say, I've been vaccinated against everything since I was a small child, and I'm doubly vaccinated against this virus. But I have great difficulty in a democratic society where the Prime Minister has said that vaccination should not be mandatory, yet people are vilified, and as Mark Latham said last night, thousands are being sacked because they're not vaccinated. If this is not worthy of debate 
In a democratic society, nothing is. And I might point out, Pauline Hanson is not the only person in the federal parliament who shares these views and these concerns. Let's go to Pauline. She's at her home outside Ipswich in Queensland and see how to resolve this dilemma. Pauline, thank you for your time. And we need to take this issue carefully and seriously. Isn't the strongest argument in treating those who choose not to be vaccinated as equal Australians, with Dominic Perrottet has done today, the fact that for those who are vaccinated, we're told that will prevent us from suffering serious consequences if the virus infected us so that unvaccinated people would not be a threat to us. How would that be argued that an unvaccinated person is a risk to others? Well, they're not. If you're vaccinated, it should have the coverage, so you shouldn't be worrying about an unvaccinated person. But we clearly know that being vaccinated doesn't stop you from getting the COVID and passing it on. By having the COVID shot, it basically, actually, you can be asymptomatic. Basically, you can have the COVID, don't know that you've got, got it, and still yeah. passing it on. So what they're imposing on the people, shutting down borders, stopping our freedoms, stopping us from going somewhere. And the stupid part about it, Alan, is that... Here I have the health professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists and different ones who cannot um, be there for their patients, for their clients, and even they can't even talk to anyone on the phone That's to correct. give them a consultation That's unless they've been vaxxed. So you can't tell me this is about health issues. This has become political. Mm. You, you see, you, you know, look, you're 1,000% correct. See, in a free society, and that's what I've been arguing all week, our focus here, Pauline, has been on freedom. People shouldn't be afraid of saying what they think so long as it's not illegal and doesn't hurt or damage others. You're saying that you object to your freedom and your choices being taken away. How does exercising your freedom interfere with anybody if 93.4% of Australians have had their first dose and 89.5% have had two doses. You're correct, Helen. And you see the health officer, chief health officer in Queensland last night said, we're not getting rid of mandating vaccines, even at 90% vaccination rate. They have no, no um, inkling of wanting to actually give people back their freedoms. It's about controlling the people. Even these check-in apps that you have, do you know under the Privacy Act, you don't have to use the check-in app? Mm -hmm. It says there, if you mm -hmm. check and use that check-in app, it says that you're giving them the authority to use your information mm -hmm. anywhere else that they want to. But, Paul, so, and surely you mentioned the Privacy Act. Surely under the Privacy Act, and it's a fact, that I'm not entitled to inquire about your health status. I mean, you know, there are people currently... Mark Latham made this point last night. Your splendid leader in New South Wales made the point. There are people being sacked because they're not vaccinated when the Prime Minister of Australia says vaccination is not mandatory. Now, you moved a bill in the Senate in September to ban jab mandates. Mandates, not jabs, mandates. Though you were no doubt misrepresented about that, the reality is there are thousands of Australians who agree with you when you argued that you wanted to, quote, revert... These were great words. Reverse the pandemic of discrimination that's been unleashed on the Australian people. What's wrong with that? That's right, Alan. It was the last two weeks of Parliament that I moved that bill. We had no support from anyone. And then when I didn't get the bill up, I tried to get it to a legal and constitutional affairs Senate committee to actually debate the bill, give the Australians the opportunity to actually debate the bill and send in their submissions. Do you know Penny Wong went out of her way to stop that bill getting up and I lost it by one vote in the Senate that it never got up three times I tried. I was devastated that not they didn't want to give the Australian people their opportunity to have their say. 
say. I'm not finished with it. I will take it back. Scott Morrison, under the Constitution, he can't mandate vaccines under Section 5123A. <clears throat> By my bringing in this, um, this bill means that 109 of the Australian Constitution meant that if you had two conflicting laws, the federal law will override the state law. And this is what I said to the Prime Minister in a, in a conversation I had with him by phone. I said, do something about it. You have to rein in the state premiers. You can't allow them to actually dictate to people. People are losing their homes. They're losing their jobs. Absolutely. They're losing their businesses. People are devastated, Alan. So, Pauline who's, running the, Pauline, who's running the country? The Prime Minister says they're not mandatory. And here you've got state premiers, you've got businesses, all sorts of people, sacking people, teachers, public servants, nurses, nurses in Queensland, losing their jobs. 7,000 nurses in Queensland. They're starting to come out now and they're speaking about the adverse side effects that this, this um, COVID is having on people. And they're seeing it with their own friends, their own nursing colleagues that have had the jab and what it's done to them. And it's not tried and tested and proven. And Alan, my biggest complaint about all this is leave the children alone. They don't need to have this jab. It doesn't affect the children. When you have 99% recovery with it, um, don't give it to people right. that don't actually need to have See, it. Pauline, my theme this week has been, is this the Australia we want it to be, yet people who are peacefully protesting on the vaccination issue are treated as idiots and ratbags and extremists? I mean, how do you dismantle this dishonesty? Because in introducing the legislation, you said of your party, we do it with sincere regret that such legislation is even necessary. You said, if the senators didn't support your legislation then they don't support Australian democracy, freedom and the right to choose. Now, what do you say to someone who says that your right to choose not to be vaccinated cuts across the right of other Australians not to have their health placed at risk by unvaccinated Australians? What do you say to that? Well, when we've had the vaccinations of uh, smallpox and, and the other vaccinations that we've had, measles, we've only needed one dose. Um, yeah. And that's actually been our protection against these diseases. Now, with the COVID, do you know that it loses its, the Pfizer loses its protection 22% a month. So you're going to have to constantly have doses. So it's not really a vaccine. We're putting this into our body that it's really a test case for this new drug that they've um, invented to try and stop it. So people, you're taking away people's rights to actually choose whether they want to have this. A lot of Australians will have it if they feel safe to have it. But to actually deny people access to libraries, to buildings, to um, their own apartment buildings, um, the shutdown of borders, you've actually denied people rights to pubs, clubs and stadiums to see those be with their children. I think that's more not, harmful. This is, not, this is not the Australia. This is not the I Australia want. If I could just say to my viewers, Pauline Nansen, I thought this was an outstanding speech. She won't get any credit for it. She said she's not against the Australian people in what she's doing. She said we're here to wield the power of the Australian people. We have no right, she said in the Parliament, to take away their rights. Now, what do you say to people like Jackie Lambie who argued, well, if you get behind the wheel of a car and drive twice the speed limit, you're putting other people's lives at risk. You don't have the right to do that. Now, I find that argument illogical because if you're driving at twice the speed limit, you're breaking the law. Not being vaccinated doesn't break any law.
is a stupid comment that you made and it doesn't have any basis to it whatsoever and it's not a, you know, a debatable argument. So we're talking about people's health, what they put in. But, Alan, I'll go back to what people are saying, they're not anti-vax, they just want to know that it's yeah. safe to, to put yeah. in their bodies. And people have a right to do that. I have a right to do it and no one why will. Alan, right. I ask this question of politicians, why are they not being forced to have the vaccination themselves? Why are judges not forced to have it? And yet you're forcing the Australian people. It's unfair on the Australian people to treat politicians totally different to the general public out there. Good and these you. politicians that are too gutless to stand up and fight for the rights of the Australian people, mm-hmm. that um, well they're not... That's well what we're there to represent the people. And, and, and if I just should say to our viewers, you see, this lady speaks her mind and she'll be vilified. Let me tell you something you don't know. Pauline Hanson's not alone in this argument. There are five coalition centres, senators who crossed the floor. Senator Rennick from Queensland, a coalition senator. Alex Anchich from South Australia, a very bright coalition centre. They've said they would block legislation unless vaccine mandates were banned. Senators Canavan, Sam McMahon and Conchetta Fiavarandi-Wells also supported the Pauline Hanson bill, but they're not withholding their votes on other matters. Are these people extremist ratbags, Pauline? Oh, no, I, ha- I take my hat off to him, especially Jared Rennick, and he's so true to his word. He's going to block legislation with my two votes, with Malcolm Roberts, myself, and Jared Rennick. The government cannot get any legislation through whatsoever, and I have made it a I promise to the people I will not support any of the government legislation until the Prime Minister deals with this issue. And, and uh, this is the biggest issue facing our country, um, Ellen. It is the biggest and issue. And I'm not going to deal with mm. any other legislation until they deal with it. Good on you. Great to talk to you, Pauline. That's been the theme this week. Freedoms, choice. Are we a democratic society or aren't we? Thank you for speaking your mind. People may not agree, but you're entitled to that view. This was the lady, remember, in an Australia who some several years ago couldn't even get a hall to speak in because she had a particular viewpoint. We've got to be better than that. This is not the Australia that we want tomorrow to be. Anyway, if you've got a view, go to go to the website, alanjones.com.au. There's room to make your comment there. We'd love to hear from you. Pauline, fantastic stuff. We'll catch up. Have a wonderful Christmas, you and James and the whole team, yes, and we'll see you down you. the track. Congratulations on your new show. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for the cartoon, by the way. Pauline, uh, Pauline put a cartoon together for us. We're not going to play it tonight, but it's on my Facebook page where she's congratulated us on the new program, and it's very funny. Just go to the Facebook page and see the cartoon. Thanks to Pauline Hanson and James and the team there. Well done, Pauline. All the best. Thank you for joining us tonight. Back after this. Well, here we are. This is where you have your say. Now, there are many ways in this brand new digital world we inhabit where you can have your say. Best go to the website, alanjones.com.au or if you go to my Facebook page, Alan Jones Australia, you can make your comments there as well. We love to hear from you because, as I say... Our viewers are our best listeners. Now, from last night, there were thousands of comments last night. And as I said, have your say by commenting below my video on Facebook and YouTube, or you can comment on the website, alanjones.com.au. Message me. Sandy on the Alan Jones Australia Facebook page said in relation to the Peggy Grandy interview, it's the old saying, America sneezes, we catch a cold. We need to know what's going on over there. Also, especially from independent news, not lamestream media. That's fake news. Craig commented, thank God you're still on air, Alan. The silent majority are behind you. The only person in Parliament who speaks common sense is Mark Latham. Well, Pauline talks a bit of it too. Michelle commented on my Facebook page, Alan Jones Australia, 
Our freedoms, Alan, please address these. We've been doing that all week, Michelle. That crazy Brad Hazzard. Wasn't he at it again today, Brad Hazzard, by the way? I mean, Michelle is saying Brad Hazzard is making threats to lock us down again already. I mean, don't worry, Michelle, I will be interviewing Nick Cater tomorrow to discuss all this, but Brad Hazzard said today, back on the alarmism track in New South Wales, there could be 25,000 COVID cases this month. Brad, just put a sack over your head, will you? Anyway, we'll talk to Nick Cater about those things tomorrow, but when will these politicians ever hand back our freedoms? Jeff commented, we cannot lose our Christian heritage. If we do, we'll lose ourselves. Wake up, people. Adam writes, we're going carbon zero. Meanwhile, China, India and others are building record numbers of coal-fired power stations. And Pamela commented below the program last night, saying, how good is Mark Latham? Voicing what most Australians think. There are thousands of jobs out there and yet the government continues to pay people to sit at home. It has to stop now. So thank you for all those comments. There's many more of them. We read them all. They're in their thousands and we are grateful. My viewers are my best researchers. Now, look, as you know, I've been asking this week whether the Australia we know today, and I made this point to Pauline, is the kind of Australia we want Australia to be. China focuses our attention significantly. That is another story. But are we handling the Chinese challenge consistent with our best interests? Two things are certain. China is not going to go away. And China, as an international power, is not likely to get weaker. Self-interest would dictate that we become less dependent on China. As Matt Canavan said on Monday, start manufacturing our own stuff, start seeking other markets. But it is valid to argue that in grappling with China, it's a bit like the big kid in the playground. Do they play the bully because we give way to them? You might recall a couple of years ago, I raised the issue of the young Queensland University student, then 20, Drew Pavlou an outstanding philosophy student at Queensland University who had campaigned responsibly about the university's tight links with the Chinese Communist Party. He actually led a protest in 2019 in support of Hong Kong democracy activists. He was assaulted by men who gave every impression of being heavies working for the Chinese state. He was then targeted by a torrent of online hate and death threats from, quote, patriotic Chinese students, unquote. China's Consul-General in Brisbane praised the violence. That is, violence towards those supporting Hong Kong democracy. Violence towards a 20-year-old, Drew Pavlou, and the China's Consul-General praised the violence. Where was our government? Nowhere to be heard. The young man sought to seek a protection order against the Consul-General through the courts. His safety was further threatened. China's state media vilified him, which virtually gave official blessing for the thuggery to continue. And why wouldn't it? if government remains silent, like it does about Black Lives Matter, like it does about flying the terrorist flags in our country. None of the pro-Beijing students or the thugs who assaulted Drew Pavlou were disciplined. The response by the Queensland University must stand as one of the most worrying assaults on free speech. But here's the rub. The then Consul General Zhu Ji is an adjunct professor in the School of Languages and Culture at the University. The Consul General adjunct professor, is as welcome as ever. In fact, the thugs weren't disciplined. Drew Pavlou was, for his protests and for his social media posts, in which he criticised the university's ties with Chinese government institutions. In fact, the University of Queensland, via its disciplinary board, delivered a 186-page document detailing 11 charges against the young undergraduate. What he was accused of, harassment and bullying, was precisely what the university and its disciplinary board were itself engaging in harassment and bullying. They, 
threw the book at him because the university obviously wanted to counter criticism of its China links. The young man was suspended from study. It should be noted the Chinese government has funded at least four courses at the University of Queensland, including China's role in strengthening responses to global security challenges. It has a Confucius Institute. Queensland University runs courses in Chinese policy, music and language. And at the time, the university's vice-chancellor was a senior consultant to Beijing's global Confucius headquarters and a member of its powerful governing council, responsible for more than 500 institutes operating in universities and schools across the world. So, a foreign authoritarian government through a Confucius Institute seems to be playing a role in determining the curricula to be taught on an Australian campus. Where is the Australian government? Is it too frightened to take a stand? The same young man, Drew Pavlou, is a Senate candidate now, supporting the diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics. But now we learn that an advertising company, which owns more than 700 billboards across Queensland, has refused to run material critical of the Chinese government, apparently for fear of retaliation by the Chinese Communist Party. In fact, the 22-year-old Queensland Senate candidate has been told he would be hard-pressed to find any billboard company in Australia to run his ads which feature the artwork of a Chinese dissident. Mr Pavlou argues that he'd been phoned by a salesman from the outdoor advertising company and told they would not run, quote, anything to do with anti-Chinese communism or anti-Winter Olympics and he shouldn't take it personally. The salesman reportedly said that his company was in cahoots with other advertising companies that had agreed not to run material that might provoke the Chinese Communist Party. And Mr Pavlou cites a text message sent to him by Bishop Outdoor Advertising saying, quote, ultimately all of the billboard companies won't run anything anti-China as this is where our product comes from, steel, digital screens. Well, may Mr Pavlou protest against Chinese Communist Party influence on Australian university campuses, but doesn't he make a point that we've reached a strange place where Chinese pressure can dictate what goes on billboards in an Australian election campaign? After all, Mr Pavlou was supporting the diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics, precisely the position announced by Scott Morrison last week, that we won't send government officials to the Winter Olympics. But how extraordinary that the same billboard companies who blacklisted his campaign have put up advertisements promoting a Chinese state-owned bank, the Chinese Communist Party-controlled Chinese Construction Bank. I ask the question again, is this the kind of Australia we want Australia to be? Sometimes you lose in this world, not because you're beaten, but because you don't fight. China have every right to exist and to seek to serve their national interest. But we have every right to criticise where their behaviour is in conflict with our values. Here's a young 22-year-old who has the courage to fight and speak out. A courage not exhibited by his own national government. Well, I said earlier, every politician seems to be on the campaign trail, which includes the former deputy leader of the Labor Party and a regular guest on my program. But for the first time, live and digital, so with an election looming, the Shadow Education Minister, Tanya Plibersek, joins me from Sydney. Tanya, thank you for your time. Our website, I should tell you, went down the first night because there are over, I don't know, 350,000 people wanting to access the program. So there's a big audience out there. Now... There are always two aspects, aren't they, to an election campaign? What a government has or hasn't done and what an opposition promises to do. 
given that you're a very prominent opposition spokesperson and we'll be talking to both sides, how would you rate the Morrison government and its leadership? Well, what leadership, Alan? I mean, you've got a Prime Minister that's never there when you need him. He's loose with the truth. He's made all sorts of commitments that he hasn't kept, promised all sorts of things that he hasn't delivered. He's always there to take credit. He's never there to take responsibility. You were in government talking about responsibility during the global financial crisis and Labor was smashed for its profligacy. People still recall pink bats, cash for clunkers and the debt ceiling being raised. What will Labor's strategy be, read the response to the coronavirus, where fewer than 1% of Australians contracted the virus, 0.008% have died and we're heading towards a trillion dollars worth of debt. Do you build on that debt or do you attempt to retire it? Well, we absolutely have to responsibly pay down that debt over, over time, Alan. But don't forget, this government had already doubled debt and doubled the deficit before coronavirus hit, long before coronavirus had hit. And then on top of the fact they'd already doubled the debt and doubled the deficit, they got rid of the debt ceiling. They did deal with the Greens to get rid of the debt ceiling. Uh, and then with the COVID-19 response, you see the fact that they've done things like paid $20 billion to companies that actually saw their profits increase during COVID-19. They've, you know, the dodgy land deal, they've paid 10 times more for the land than they should have, the sports rorts, the car park rorts. And just today, we see an analysis that shows that they've paid about four times more in grants to coalition seats than to Labor seats. I mean, this is taxpayers' money, Alan. It's not Scott Morrison's re-election fund. This is taxpayers' money that they pay so that every Australian gets a good school, a good hospital, roads to drive on, the things they need for this to be a strong country and have a good quality of life. It's not an election campaigning fund for Scott Morrison, the, the taxes that you pay. Well, come and back to... Labor come, will always be more responsible with uh, with spending taxpayers' money. Well, come back to retiring the debt. Am I, am I right in arguing that you will lift the maximum childcare subsidy rate to 90% and that'll be for every family earning less than $530,000? Now, does that mean that 90% of childcare costs will be rebated or does this rebate scale down as the income goes up? Look, it does scale down as income increases, Alan, but a million families will be better off under Labor's policy. 97% of families that are receiving childcare uh, subsidies at the moment will be better off under our policy. And we know that this is not just a great investment to get women back into the workforce. Everywhere I go, I'm travelling a lot, as you say, we've, we've got the campaign sort of underway, I travel to regional communities, Alan, they tell me they are desperate for skilled staff. They can't find the skilled staff they need. We want those mothers back in the workforce, not saying, oh, I can't do day four or day five this week because my childcare subsidy runs out. So it's good for mums. And we also know that it's good for children to get that before school education that helps them be school ready when they actually start kindergarten. But Tanya, isn't it a reality, though, that when the rebates increase, childcare costs go up? Now... Yes. How do you stop well, that? Very careful. No, no, you're quite right, Alan, to identify this as a problem. Um, any subsidy that you put into a system can sometimes just be a, a, a straight subsidy to the person providing the good or service. You have to be very careful. And that's why we would ask the Productivity Commission to look at the whole childcare subsidy system to design a 
strong system that sees any extra money that government's putting in going into the pockets of parents and making sure that childcare is good quality and more affordable, not just subsidising the, the profits of uh, private childcare providers. But, but to be credible, shouldn't this program be fully costed before an election? I mean, how... Well, the... it is. Yeah, it is. I, I, read, the... I read your policy and it wasn't costed. The Parliamentary Budget Office has costed this policy. Uh, it, it comes in at about $6.2 billion over the forward estimates. The Parliamentary Budget Office is independent. It's, um, it's doing the work, you know, for, for us. It would do the same work if it was the Liberals uh, in opposition. And they work it out with all of the information from the government departments. So these are the most credible, most... Uh, um, robust costings that we can provide. I've spoken to you before, and we both are passionate about this, about the inevitable consequences on children, of children being kept out of education during the pandemic. Didn't the government set aside, because I get parents writing to me about this, set aside $25 million to help children? Has that money been spent? Where is that money as I speak to you today? I think it's sitting in a Treasury vault somewhere, Alan. I don't think any of that has made it into classrooms yet. Uh, it is so disappointing because we know that kids, particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, have really missed out. They've really suffered. But where will 25 uh, million go? Where will 25, 25 million? Where will that go? Well, it's not much money, is it? No. When you think of the need that kids have, um, the social and emotional wellbeing as much as anything else. I mean, a lot of them have fallen behind in their learning, yeah. but they've also missed out on so much. We've talked about what they've missed out on um, with their mates, school camps and excursions and school formals and just playing sport in the playground or playing around before and after school. They need they need to re-establish those relationships and, and you know, what Absolutely. it's like to be a kid. And it's such a shame that the government, lost, first mm. of all, committed this puny amount of money and, and hasn't even managed to spend that. Let's come back to this. You're now... You've spent more years in the federal parliament, 23 years, than any other female MP. The bulk of those years have been in opposition. Why have the public consistently rejected Labor? So you're really rubbing it in tonight, aren't you, Alan? <laughs> no, you're very young. <laughs> um, I think we need to do a better job at reminding people of the values that Labor has, that if you work hard, you get decent pay, you work harder, you get paid better. You've got a secure job, a good school for your kids, it's TAFE and university when your kids get a bit older, a good hospital system, aged care that treats people with dignity so that they can retire with dignity and respect. Uh, our values, um, uh, I think, are consistent, but, but uh, we haven't always communicated that as well as we should. No. You've talked about equality and, and women being treated equally. I must say, many men would hope that they were treated equally and that they didn't differentiate, but when you say treated equally, does it mean paid equally, which are they not? Uh, are there instances where a woman is doing identical work to that of a man and getting paid less? Yeah, Alan, I, I, Australian women don't want special treatment. They no. just want equality. Yes. And sadly, there are still instances where women are being treated, paid less than men for doing the same work, particularly in the private sector. If you look at an industry like finance, that's where the gender pay, pay 
gap is biggest. And I think it's no coincidence that that's where the industry that makes the most use of pay secrecy clauses as well. So you can have two people in executive that's levels right, that you, are, don't know. you know, doing basically the same work that are paid differently. But it's also across industries. Like if you look at a job like early childhood education and care, that is responsible, difficult, long hours, physically draining, intellectually challenging. You know, I, I really don't think if if this, you know, was more equally men and women that people would be getting paid 22 bucks an mm, hour yeah. to do this work. It is, is it, hard. They're very valid point. They're very, very valid points. They're very valid points. Does it, though, does it minister to the dignity of a woman if she gains preferment before because she's a woman rather than on ability? I mean, you won that pre-selection for the seat of Sydney at, what, against a red-hot field when you're about 28. You were chosen by pre-selectors on merit. How do you achieve a gender balance in Parliament? Because I think it is important we hear the views of women. But how do you achieve that? Well, Alan, look, the simple truth is if um, all these decisions were simply made on merit, the Parliament would be a different place already. I think if merit was the deciding factor, it would already be half female because we know that half the brains and half the talent and half the capacity for hard work is in half the community, which is female. So... Uh, I, I think this argument about, um, you know, uh, talent or capacity being the deciding factor, I agree with that. I think there are so many talented women that get discouraged because of the environment, because of the high level of conflict. They perceive it as um, a, a workplace that's a pretty, you know, frankly, awful workplace. I think we need to change that to make it a more appealing place for women and men to make it healthier and a better example a better example. Your parents came here in the 50s. They were refugees after the Second World War. They would have thought, like many refugees, this was a magnificent place. But now, many of the freedoms that they were so excited to see, which were denied them until they came here, in this marvellous country, many of those freedoms are being taken away. Do you think people today, as I'm speaking to you, feel free in this modern Australia, free to speak, free to be participants in a civilised debate and discussion. Do you think the denial of all these freedoms during coronavirus was an appropriate government response? Alan, you're right about my parents. They were grateful every single day, every single day, for the freedoms um, that they were given in Australia that they didn't have in Yugoslavia. But I think it is really drawing a long bow to say that some of the sacrifices that people have made during COVID-19 is the same as communist Yugoslavia, you know. Um, yes, it's been a really tough time and Australians have done so well in getting themselves vaccinated and following the rules and they've done it for one another. They haven't just thought, what, you know, how does this affect me? They've thought, I want to get vaccinated. I'm not worried about being sick. I'm worried about my grandma catching COVID from me and what it would do to her if she got sick. So I think as always, we need to balance freedom and responsibility. Of course, we should have freedoms, but those freedoms come with responsibilities to our fellow Australians. Yeah, I mean, we talked about education. Just a quick one. I mean, even the Prime Minister said the children should be in a school. If you were the leader of government, would you be taking children out of school? This has never happened in the war, didn't happen in the Spanish flu, didn't never happen. And the price, the con we'll, we won't know the consequences of this for years to come. Uh, I think remote learning was very hard on kids, Alan, but I would always take the advice of the medical experts about what's necessary. Were they the experts? Time, 
I think the shortest possible time out of school is really important, having kids uh, back playing with each other and learning together as soon as possible is, is always preferable. But <laughs> if the medical advice had been we're going to have a bigger spread of COVID if we don't do this, I would have followed that advice. You were once Labor's foreign affairs spokesperson, a role now held by Penny Wong. When you look at Australia in this part of the world and see an expansionist China, threats to Hong Kong and Taiwan, the possibility that our sea routes could be blocked if China chose to do so and our oil supplies would dry up, how should we be responding to the China challenge? Well, I think, Alan, uh, I think about Teddy Roosevelt saying... Um, the diplomacy is about talking softly and carrying a big stick. I, I think the big problem at the moment is we talk loudly and don't have much of a stick at all. <laughs> it is really important that we, um, of course, uh, put Australia's interests first, that we are able to defend ourselves, that we assert our values, um, but we also need to be looking for ways of improving our relationships uh, with our region, the ASEAN neighbours in particular, the people that we share common interests with uh, right across the Indo-Pacific and our traditional allies like uh, Europe, um, the UK, the United States, of course. When it comes to China, I think um, what we ought to be doing is asserting our values, staying true to our philosophy, but also looking for areas where we can cooperate to try and normalise relationships as much as possible. It's not in Australia's long-term economic interest to have our coal ships sitting off Chinese ports, to have our wine ban, our seafood ban. We do need to re-establish connections here. Just finally, uh, because we'll be able to talk about this in more detail during the course of the campaign, uh, you're the Shadow Education Minister, we've touched on that, but only today we learn, according to new data from tests for the National Assessment Program Literacy and Numeracy, that one in five teenage boys is semi-literate in high school, that boys are twice as likely as girls to struggle with reading and writing at the age of 15, that one in ten girls and one in five boys had failed to reach the minimum standard for writing after nine years of education, and that in writing, 21% of boys and 10% of girls fell below the national standard, meaning they couldn't punctuate sentences, spell simple and common words, or write a story in paragraphs. When are we going to prioritise what is happening in education and recognise that we're way behind the rest of the world? Well, Alan, this is one of the, the reasons that I chose the education portfolio. I want every Australian child to get a great education, no matter where they live, no matter their family background. And we're just not doing that. When Labor was last in government, we set aside extra funding for schools, but we, we also insisted that every school had a plan for school improvement. We set targets. We were prepared to be held accountable. The extra funding and those reforms were um, dispensed with by the Liberal government. And the result is we've got the worst results for kids since international testing began. We've gone backwards. Our 15-year-olds are more than a year behind 15-year-olds of, you know, a few years ago. They're slipping against their international peers. 
Well, I'll we tell you what. of course need to make sure that our, fair, our funding is fair, but that we've got the policies uh, right that would improve teaching in every classroom in every part of well, Australia. Well, I'll tell you something. Down the track, as the election gets closer, I just want to talk to you about this because I think this is the most critical issue. The leaders of tomorrow are currently in our classrooms. If we're not preparing them adequately, we all fail. So, look, thank you for your time tonight. Um, happy Christmas to you and the family. Thank you for your cooperation Thanks, during you. the course of the year. Lovely to talk and we'll talk again. There she is. Not at all. There's Tanya Plimasek, the former deputy leader. She does frighten people on the conservative side. It's an impressive and articulate performance, isn't it? And, of course, having been there for 23 years and in several portfolios, she's across a lot of issues. Many of you won't agree with what she's got to say. doesn't matter. Go to the website. It's the new digital world, alanjones.com.au. You can make all your comments there. Now, look, just before we go, you might recall that last night Mark Latham indicated that he will be advocating to end the dole the unemployment benefit on March 1 next year. I've asked over and over again, how can there be labour shortages everywhere, and I mean everywhere, hospitality, agriculture, general duties, when almost a million Australians are receiving job seeker and youth allowance payments, 988,391 to be precise. Yet across almost every sector of the economy, employers can't find workers. Let's be blunt. We have a massive worker shortage, yet there are almost a million Australians with their hands in someone else's pocket, getting paid for doing nothing. And please, Canberra, don't suggest we're waiting for mass migration to solve the problem of employee shortages. Well, let's take a quick trip to France. The president there, Emmanuel Macron, has put the unemployed under real pressure. To the anger of unions and many unemployed, inspectors have been ordered to carry out 250,000 checks in the next six months in an attempt to break a long tradition in which some of the currently redundant make little attempt to find new work. Now, there are 2.4 million people unemployed in France. Unemployment is more than 8%. I wonder if this has anything to do with it. You see, the benefit system in France is such that someone made redundant can be paid up to, you ready for it? 2,000 Australian dollars a week for two years. Of the 2.4 million unemployed, the recently redundant represent about half a million. Now, under the French Prime Minister said in 2019 that people were exploiting a rule that gives them more money if they lose their job than when they're in work. 2000 Australian dollars a week for two years. When President Sarkozy promised in 2008 to strike people off for refusing more than one job offer, it came to nothing. The Employment Service still allows more than two refusals of an offer of work and rarely cuts any benefits. Well, the message is simple. It's an insult to hard-working Australians that there are jobs everywhere and almost a million Australians have their hand in someone else's pocket. Remember, the theme for this week is, is this the Australia we want it to be? Macron is on the right track. It's time we caught the same train. Which brings me to the thought for the night, captured by Cartoon, where the father says to his son, son, the world isn't fair. And the son says, I know, Dad, but why isn't it ever unfair in my favour. Well, that's what the Australian worker is saying. It's unfair that people can put their hand in the worker's pocket. That's it for tonight. It's all there on the website, alanjones.com.au. This program will be on the podcast at 6am tomorrow and you can then hear Alan Jones comment at 7am. We're on this pioneering journey together. It's great to have you on board. Tell your friends, as I said, make the website the salt and pepper of your life. alanjones.com.au. See you tomorrow night. Good night.